This is Oasis City Radio Music. This is Oasis City Radio Music. This is Oasis City Radio Music. Twenty-four hours a day at oasiscityradio.com. Tune in, iHeartRadio, and the Oasis City Radio app. This is Oasis City Radio music. Oasis City Radio. All right, how's everybody doing? Wow. So good to be down here. It feels weird, actually. I came up from Florida. I've been down there for a week, and I still got another week uh, down there. <clears throat> and uh, so I flew up here. I feel so close to home, but so far away, you know. So I watched online here a few minutes ago to make sure everybody was doing what they were supposed to be doing. Uh, it's great about live feed. You know, I used to text guys, say, move that microphone in behind there over to the right. They'd be like, why are you texting me? So... <clears throat> Good to be here. Just News just came in, a recent study. A recent study has found that women who carry a little extra weight live longer than the men who mention it. Just so you know. <laughs> Bill Johnson told me that, so if you don't like it, you need to let him know. <laughs> oh, jeez. All right, come on, computer, here we go. Okay. Hey, I want to talk about Jesus. Uh, You know, about a year ago, the Lord just really started speaking to me in some specific ways. And I I told the first service, I said, this past year, I've just kind of really been into Jesus. And it it feels kind of odd because I've been in ministry 40 years. You think that'd be the full 40. And uh, of course, I preach Jesus. I love Jesus, everything else. But for some reason... In this past year, I've got a new, it's part of it's being 62. You learn things that you learned 40 years ago, but forgot about. And it kind of, it's supposed to be a joke. But anyway, it comes back, <laughs> it comes back. You're like, oh, this is, this is like the fish, you know, the fish in the fish bowl, the goldfish. He gets up every morning and says, oh, there's a castle here, you know. <laughs> That's all they know. They have no memory, you know. So, so after a while, it just kind of, I think this is new revelation, but I might've preached it last year. I don't know. But anyway, revelation is coming to me about Jesus and just about his life. And so I got really hungry about a year ago on on studying particularly the first 30 years of Jesus, his life here, which there's hardly anything in scripture. There's just a few verses about the first 30 years. You know, when he was born, it was a great celebration, angels in heaven, Hosanna in the highest, you know, and born unto you this day. Uh, son of David, you know, because it's just beautiful. And then, boom, it's quiet for 12 years. And then all of a sudden he appears in the temple. There's a little deal that goes on there. I'll mention it in a minute. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then uh, and then, 18 years later, uh, he's in the synagogue and he opens the, the, uh, the books of the law and he begins to read actually from the prophets. And, and it was an entrance into a... Uh, a 10% period of his life. So it's it's like 90% preparation, 
10% activation. Uh, you know, nowadays we do 10% preparation, 90% activation. There's something in that. I don't know what it is. But that God would need that prep in order to minister because Jesus was God in the flesh that would need that prep to grow in wisdom and stature with God and man. Now figure that out. Jesus humbles himself in Philippians chapter 2. It says he, he humbled himself, took on the form of a man, and dwelt among us, according to John 1. And so the humility of God to become a, a microscopic seed placed into the womb of a woman and then growing from there. That takes like faith to do that. You know, if I'm God, I don't know that I would want to do that, you know. So however that works, and you go, I don't know how that works. I don't either. I've been studying this my whole life, and I've got a million questions to ask God when I get to heaven, you know. But I started digging deeper into those first 30 years from things that happened during that time, artifacts that have been uncovered in Nazareth, and what it tells us about the life that he lived, and what were carpenters really like during that time. And Jesus came in a time that was a hinge in history, probably one of the most major hinges in history, where the Roman Empire was arguably the, one of the largest empires in the world, the most powerful at that time. And had gone, again, arguably, it, it, it lasted about 800 to 1,000 years. So imagine that. I mean, America is kind of young compared to that. 800 to 1,000 years, and Jesus comes right smack dab in the middle of it. And he comes at that time because there's these Roman roads that have been built. There's, there's some level of governance and authority that allowed free movement, kind of like the United States, but not like it. Uh, of course, there was oppression, and they were the Jews, which were an oppressed group, uh, subject to the Roman government. So it was, it was, a, it was a, uh, a mobile form of uh, uh, slavery of sorts the, where they were bound by Roman law, but also they in their graciousness as much as they had, Romans had, they allowed them to do what they did with, as long as you don't cause trouble, you know. And so, uh, so they did that. And in the midst of that is birthed the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it's so that that seed could, could grow up and within a 400 year period reach the outer limits of the Roman Empire, piece by piece, portion by portion. Now, today is another major hinge period in history. We are living right now in a period of time where the world is at our hand. I mean, everyone has a smartphone, most people. Some people still have flip phones. Smartphone, you know. And in that smartphone, you have access to the world. You have tools that we've never had before. I mean, you know, we take millions of pictures. It's amazing. I mean, I've got like 15,000 pictures on my phone. I take pictures of food, take (laughs) pictures of my grandkids, you know, everything. We got all this stuff and... You know, then I look at the pictures from when I was a teenager. I've got like, you know, 10 faded pictures from the 70s. And uh, actually, they have a 70s lens now that you can get, you know, a, a tent that looks just like them. I go, why would you want to do that? I, I can't even see my face in this picture, you know. And, you know, and the pictures cost a dollar each. I don't know if you remember that. You'd go up to the corner store. You'd turn in your little film rolls, you know, and you'd hope, oh, I hope I didn't get any light on that. I hope the light was right. And whatever you got, you know, you go bad, bad, good, bad, bad, good, bad, bad, good. And you end up with about four pictures that you paid 30 bucks for, you know. <laughs> like, that's it. That's why, you know, your parents or grandparents, they let you look at the pictures and go, why do you take more pictures? 
because it's very expensive to take more pictures. And we, we couldn't get it right. You know, we're laughing, talking, it's blurry and everything. And the, you know, the seventies tent that's on there, you know, and so, and so it's, it's, we're in a place right now where it is just the ability to explode worldwide in moments out of a location is immediate. I mean, it took 400 years for Christianity to reach the highest levels of the Roman Empire and to literally shift. In fact, uh, the pagans actually blamed, the barbarians actually blamed, and everyone blamed, really, the Christians for the fall of Rome uh, because they, they got a little sleepy on the watch there, but it's not. Augustine rose up as one of the great speakers of the early centuries to debunk that theory in the fourth fourth century uh, and basically said, no, 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 it had nothing to do with the Christians. The Christians actually prolong the existence of the Roman Empire and will continue to grow and emerge regardless of what empire is here. So all that to say is we are in a moment right now of, of a major hinge of history and the promise of worldwide capturing of over a billion souls for the Lord Jesus Christ is right here in front of us. It really is. And it can come out of a local spot. I mean, Oasis Church can impact the world. I mean, you're at, you're at Google. We're not supposed to say that. You're at Google yesterday and ministering. But also, Georgian has also taken groups to other technical groups like Apple and uh, Microsoft and uh, some other groups out there where they take worship while the conference is going on and people, uh, technical people can come in at any time and experience, uh, what is it, 12 hours, I think? 12 hours of continuous worship in the presence of God. I mean, it's amazing. And the fact that they could greet us up here is just like the potential right now. And, and yet the church in America in many ways has fallen asleep. And so there's a quickening. God's calling. There's a Jesus revival coming. There's a new Jesus movement coming. And I am here to encourage the church to wake up. Awake, you sleeper. <laughs> this church apparently isn't sleeping, though. It doesn't feel like it. Are you sleeping? Okay. It did. Well, that wasn't really. Are you sleeping? Okay, good. All right. Well, open your Bibles then to Luke chapter 2. Luke two, Luke chapter two, Jesus said, Jesus told his disciples to learn of me. Now, followers of a rabbi in the first century learned the yoke of the rabbi. The yoke was teaching. It was a, it was a picture of teaching. And so Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. In fact, Jesus is so amazing. I might've mentioned this two weeks ago when I was here because it's been swirling around my head for about a month now. But you got to understand that there were 10 commandments. Everybody knows that, right? You saw the movie, Moses and the 10 commandments and everything. By the time Jesus comes, there are 613 recognized commandments that come out of those 10 commandments. 613. You imagine how, I mean, the 10 are hard. Do not covet your neighbor's BMW. I mean, that's a hard one, you know. You're driving around an old Pinto that the wheels are falling off or something, you know. You're like, man, man, I don't know why, why am I going to get that, you know? And you're, you're kind of, it's, it's there. I mean, Ten Commandments are hard, you know. And so now, it, by the time of Christ is there, there's 613 recognizable commands out of the the Torah that you're like, oh, you know, that, you think that's oppressive. This is, and so Jesus comes into the culture where everybody's like so burdened with religion. And by the way, it's happened in America too. I mean, we've added all kinds of stuff that, that are kind of nod, nod, wink, wink, you better not do that, uh, kind of a deal. And we, we're overweighted and we've, we've defined our relationship with God with all this weight. 
And so Jesus appears on the scene. This is what I love about Jesus. Jesus says, learn of me, learn of me. So what he says is, he says, when they try to trap him in the commandments and see what he's going to say, he says, there's two commandments. Love the Lord God with your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so he takes, there's 10 in, in the legalistic mosaic law, which was beautiful, but, but was a, was a weight that was upon people. It, it caused them to know that I'm a sinner. And then good Jewish people converted that into 613 laws that you need to follow. Jesus, so they're, they're walking around. You ever see someone burdened? Like with the yoke on them? You know, you're like this. Like this, Jesus comes along. He is the lifter of your head. <laughs> Jesus comes along and says, there's two. Why? Two. Two? Dos. <laughs> two commandments. Yes, two. Love the Lord God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Everyone do that right now. All of you non, non-Catholics right now. <laughs> Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let's do one more time. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know what that means, right? Father sent his son to earth, down to your heart. And then when Jesus was crucified, there was an explosion of his power through the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, that's the shoulders. So it's heaven to earth, power, power. That's the ancient understanding. Going back to the first century, used to be done on the head. Then they expanded it, I think, in the third century to be a, it's a creed. It's a spoken creed. Don't get freaked out by it. I do it all the time. I get in situations, I go in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know, my grandson goes to Catholic school. He does it with me. So he's, he's learning early. It's, it's a creed saying, this is what I believe. Father came to earth and the power of the Holy Spirit broke out. And the power of the Holy Spirit is out. It forms a cross. It's religions on one side and, and sin is on the other. They're the two extremes outside of the pure love of God that flows down from heaven. And your job is to stay close to that love line. You're either in love, you're in licentiousness, or you're in, what's the other one? Uh, uh, something. Starts with an L too. I just can't think of it right now. Legalism. Or legalism. Yeah, legalism or licentiousness. Thank you. Legalism and licentiousness are the two thieves on your cross. Legalism will try to rob you. Licentiousness or license to sin will try an extreme weird grace that so-called grace that pops up. But the love of Jesus Christ keeps you in the center of God. So you want to stay where the fire is and the fire is in Jesus Christ. So in this scripture, when Jesus says, learn of me, he's, he's telling you that God, Jesus takes complex things and makes them simple. Religion takes simple things. You hear me now? It makes it complex. So when you find yourself in complexities, you need the Holy Spirit to bring understanding into those complexities. I face them all the time. You know, life is full of complexities. But if you are dwelling in complexity, you are outside the garden. Now, let me clarify this. Being outside the garden doesn't mean you're not loved by God and you're not going to heaven, all that kind of stuff. You know, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you're going to heaven. I'm just telling you that you can work by the sweat of your brow and have pain in everything that you try to birth. Or when you're in the garden, which is the kingdom of God, Jesus starts the... This is not my message. I don't know where I'm going. But anyway... He starts the Bible with a garden. He ends the Bible with a garden. You know, the trees by the river of life, the the, the garden. And then smack dab in the middle, he plants the garden in Psalm 1. Trees planted by the water is a garden. And then he, and then he populates the rest of scripture with gardens all over the place in the Old Testament and then the new place. I mean, where did Jesus go when he was in great distress? He went to the garden of Gethsemane. 
And he was recognized when he was, he was actually buried in a garden. And when Mary came to the tomb, she talked to Jesus, not knowing who he was, but thought he was a gardener. And so the kingdom of God is a garden. By the way, it's also a city. It's also a temple. But the kingdom of God is a garden city. The church is meant to be an expression of colonies from heaven. The church is to be a garden city. It means it has order. You know, I don't know what Jesus' gardens look like. Jesus did tell us to tend and keep it. You know, there is work in the garden. It's just not by the sweat of your brow. You're not toiling for it. People in the spirit of God, the kingdom of God, the garden of God move in flow. That means it doesn't matter what mechanism is put in front of them, they will flow around it or in it. If you've got a really bad job, doesn't matter. I'm going to flow in it and I'm going to transform that conduit of that terrible job that I have. I'm bringing a new atmosphere. I'm bringing a new fragrance there. My mission, my job that I don't really like a whole lot It's now my mission because I am called to learn of Jesus. And everywhere Jesus was, he adapted the moment and supernaturally changed it. Your marriage may be outside the garden. But you know what? He can restore your wilderness. It says this in Isaiah somewhere. Go figure. He says he will turn your your wilderness into the garden of the Lord. He's a gardener. He's a builder. He said, I will build my church. So I'm learning at Jesus. Like, okay, Jesus has love languages. I, I, about somewhere in the fall, the Lord gave me a revelation on five love languages that God has. And of course, it's like any love language. You know, when you, you've read, uh, what's his name's books? Uh, yeah, that guy. And, uh, he's got the, you know, he's helped a lot of couples over the years. How many are there? Five, five love languages. I came up for five too for God. Turns out he has more, but anyway. Uh, so these five love languages, and, you, and if you're a smart man or woman, you learn that, okay, my husband likes, he's, he's a giver, he, it's gifts, gifts is his uh, love language, you know, and so, so you can either resist that and say, well, I don't believe in that kind of stuff, or you can say, you know what, I'm going to build the best relationship I can, I'm learning from Jesus, I'm going to learn from Jesus that I find out what is the love language of the other person so that I can minister to them in that way. I humble myself because it may not be my language. So I learned to speak French because my wife is French. I learned to speak Spanish because my husband's Spanish. I learned to love language. I learned how to love this person in a deeper way because the first love you get in marriage is, it's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's good, but it's, it's, it's shallow. Because then you wake up on a Monday morning and you're like, oh, it's like normal life. It's just I got another person here with me. You know, I mean, I love, obviously there's feelings and everything else, but you realize at some point, I've been married 40 years, 41 years. So there's some period in your life where you realize that no, we got to go to a deeper level. And I'm going to have to figure this woman out because here's the whole trick of everything is that you're changing through your whole life. Like that, you're, you're shooting a, a moving target. They they tell us in science that every seven years, your cells totally regenerate. It's like seven years, Steve's a different Steve. He's got all new cells. You know, and the Steve you married is not, the, I mean, the, the Steve, trust me, the Steve my wife married 40 years ago had hair. And, and this Steve's not, not as much on that, you know. And so she's had to navigate that over the years. Even in the Bible, this is, this is why it's important, this love language thing. I don't want to take too much time on it. I'm like, oh man, it's, I got a countdown clock, man. I got to really move. Um, it, 
Here, let me give you one. This, this one always causes controversy, but I'll throw it out anyway. Take a drink. Last thing. We'll see what spiritual depth we have here in the congregation. This is your test. I love the verse that says, wives submit to your husbands. I just wanted to tell you, I like that verse. <laughs> no. no, now we know what's attached to that verse. There's thousands of years of abuse toward women legalized by a verse out of context. Woman! Doesn't that just really, like, that really ministers to women when you say that. Where's my coffee? <laughs> Well, I, 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 I was busy with the kid. The Bible says, <laughs> you know, I forget the men love their wives part. But anyway, there's, so I was reading this a month ago because I wanted to kind of tackle it in a sermon. And, and I kind of think I know what God was really trying to do there, but it's been abused over all these years. And so, and the Lord spoke to me and said, well, you, you speak the love language of your spouse. So men love reverence and honor. It's a love language for them. That if you, and I'll, I'll take it to the extremes in the Bible with Abraham and said that Sarah called him Lord. I'm not recommending that, but <laughs> hey, she, she got the love language. Lord Abraham. Yes. What can I do for you? Can you do the dishes? Yes, of course. Try that. It might work. I don't know. <laughs> and so, so there's a, there's something about men that that the lights come on when there's respect and honor. Now, I know that goes for everybody. I'm not saying, you know, I'm just saying that it's a love language for men. Now, the Bible also says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So what's the language that, now, now by the way, for women to do that, it's, it's more challenging because they may not have a man that's worthy of respect. So you speak those things which are not as though they were. And I'm not talking about if you're being abused or whatever, you may need to be separated for a while until, you know, the devil leaves and, and God can deal with the person or whatever, you know. So, but I'm talking about in normal marriages that are struggling and trying to make a good marriage. You, you women learn to say, you know, I thank you for, for being the man you are. Thank you for helping raise great children. And, and you know, again, you're going to speak some of these things in faith. Thank you. You know, you're, you're, you know, we used to say in our, my training course, Dale Carnegie, we used to say, you know, give them a reputation to live up to. And so you're speaking something, you're declaring something, but it does something in a man that, that rises, raises them up and says, you know, I need to be a, I need to be the man. You know, I need to be, I need to be loving and I need to be hang out with the kids and I need, whatever it is. I mean, that's what it is. With women though, it says husbands love your wives because men, typically have issues with knowing how to love. Generally speaking, I know it's a stereotype, but it applies to 99% of the men. So there's this, why is that? Because that is a woman's love language actually to be treasured. So men want to be respected. Women want to be treasured. And it's, it's a battle in your heart because it's out, you, you know, you try to treasure your husband. Uh, generally speaking, husband's are not built up by being treasured. I mean, I understand it's, it probably feels good and everything, but as far as changing them, you respect them. As far as changing a woman, you treasure them. And by treasuring them, the only, the way treasures are created is by love being attached to a person, place, or thing. A noun. 
You attach love to a noun. You attach your finances to a noun. You, you attach your time to a noun and it becomes a treasure. Like a boat can become a treasure. It's a thing, but it can become a treasure because you give all your time, your money and everything else. If you gear that toward your wife and say you, in fact, guys, all the ladies, just kind of close your ears for a minute. Guys, just try this when you get home. Sometime today, they'll forget about this and just say, you know what? I treasure you. Use those words. I treasure you. Those are really powerful words. Say, I treasure you. Now, then you got to back it up. I treasure you so much. You know, and here's another one. Guys, say, this is not this is my message, but anyway, I'm, I'm liking it right now. He said, say something like, I was thinking about you today. Women generally do not think you're thinking about them. They think about you. It's just what women do. But guys typically don't think the other way. They're just, you know, guys are occupied with whatever's in front of them. You know, they're... Anyway, it's another story for another time. <clears throat> and so, like, oh yeah, well, you know, of course I treasure you. You know, I, I love you. You know, of course. What else do you want me to say? I mean, that's the problem. So you're not taking time to learn the language. You learn the language of love and you say, I treasure you. I was thinking about you today. In fact, the more detail you give, the stronger it is. It was 105 this afternoon. I had an uncrustable in my hand. I just heated it up on my office furnace and I was tasting it and I thought, oh, I love my wife. (laughs) So you see, you've attached time, money, energy to your spouse. I'm, you know, I'm I'm a one session marriage counselor. You come to me, I'll go, okay, here's what you do. Don't say anything. I don't need to know what's going on. Guys, do this. Treasure your wife. Here's some tips. Do this, 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 and this. And then create that and do it over and over until it becomes a habit. And then the habit becomes you. And she will live with you forever. And love you. And she'll reflect respect upon you as a result of that. Somebody's got to start it. And typically, for whatever reason, God seems to think men are more difficult at getting this going. And so it says, you guys are the head. You need to do this first and get the circle of love moving and going. It's not going to be as hard for women as it is for men. I don't understand that. I've got some problems with that, but God deals with it. So I'll be fine. Luke chapter two says this. Boy, I'm sorry. That just came out of nowhere. Anyway, Luke 2, 49, Luke 2, 49 through 52 says this. And he said to them, now this is, this is uh, Jesus when he's 12 years old. Got to get context here. 12 years old, he, he had wandered from the crowd of people that were going down to Jerusalem to party for the Passover. And they did, his family would have done four or five trips from Ohio to West Virginia every year. That's about what it was. So going down to Charleston, I did that growing up. We lived in Cleveland. My parents were from West Virginia. So it seemed like, it felt like every weekend, but it wasn't. But we'd make these pilgrimages down to West Virginia, you know, to remember where we came from and hang out with the family and stuff like that. And so they're doing that. In fact, what's so cool about this, and we don't have this a lot in our culture, but they would, they would make a journey down the same road to Jerusalem every year of their life. Imagine that. Four or five times. And on the way, you know, Cousin Ehud and... And, and sister uh, Sarah would come, they'd be joining from other villages. By the time they would get down 
to the city of Jerusalem, there's hundreds, if not thousands of people that, that do this all the time, four or five times a year. It's this huge Jewish community of devout Jews that are saying, we're going, we are sending the hill of the Lord. And they would sing songs of ascent out of Psalm of David. You know, they would sing these songs that, that were going up to the city of God, to the house of God, to Jerusalem. They would sing them together and their hearts would be stirred. Emotional context would come to them. And so it was no problem when they got there and, and Jesus gets occupied over in the temple at 12 years old, debating with some of the top Jewish theologians of the time and puzzling them that when they headed back home, all of a sudden Mary said, wait, where's Jesus? I mean, how do you lose God? <laughs> where's Jesus? You imagine the, 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 the fear that went in her heart. Oh my gosh, Lord, he put that seed inside of me. I raised it up. Now he's gone. He's been occupied from some crazy Philistine or something. I don't know what happened. So they go down there and they go to Jerusalem. They're searching around. They find him in the temple and he's there debating with the white and they are, they're confounded by his wisdom. So that's the moment. Now, you know, you're a mom. If you've missed your child for a couple days at age 12, what would you say? You know, I know what I, I said in the past. If my kids were gone a couple hours and they didn't tell me where they went, I said, they better be dead or I'm going to kill them. If I give my hand, you know. Mary shows up and says, Jesus says, well, why do you seek me? <laughs> Jesus, not the thing to say. His mom and dad were probably like, oh. He said, then why do you seek me? Do you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now this to me impacted me a while back as I've been doing this deeper study in Jesus. I, I just thought, Jesus. His father's business. And that's a bit of a euphemism for his time. Your father's business is your father's business. So immediately if he'd say, you know, it'd be about my father's business. Joseph is standing there like, are you building something? (laughs) I'm a carpenter. I'm an artisan. I'm a craftsman. I have my own business. And by the way, at age 12, he'd already been hanging around with his father since age five. First five years raised by the mother. And from there on in Jewish culture, you, you enter into school uh, from age 5 to uh, or approximately 12 or 13. You have your bar mitzvah, you're, you, you're promoted into manhood, and you really go into deep apprenticeship, which he did for 18 years with his father. He learned the craft of being a first century carpenter. So when he says his father's business, you mean like Joseph and sons? Is that the one you're talking about? But he's speaking of a new understanding that came upon him. He's giving... He, Whatever you think about Jesus and his limited thought in this moment, being God that humbled himself, took on the form, he grew in wisdom and stature and learned obedience through the things which he suffered. So there was some kind of uh, self-imposed limitation that Jesus, and I'm not here to argue that theologically, I'm just getting you some thought. So we don't know what, what, to what fullness he understood the full context of who he was. He understood an identity, I'm a son of God, but how that was expressed, we don't know. And so he's there and he's, He's, he's about to move now into 18 years of training, but he's getting the feel of the weight of the city of God, the garden of the Lord coming upon his city of man. 
He's feeling that. He's like, I'm about my father's business. He's discovering a new potential. The new potential is, is that regardless of what you do and where you are, you have the very power of heaven inside your heart through Jesus Christ, empowered by his Holy Spirit, exposed and revealed by his Holy Spirit, the depths and the riches of Jesus Christ, and you are inserted in situations, some good and some bad, all over the world. And in that place, you're meant to be a seed that blossoms in the midst of concrete if necessary. And so Jesus says, I'm about my father's business, but they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them, which is typical in the Bible, you know, and I've shared that here before. Um, disciples seemingly never understood Jesus. It's, it's over, it's over, it's close to 30 times, maybe over that, I forget now. 30 times in the New Testament when Jesus is speaking to his disciples and it says, and they knew not what he said. And they did not understand this saying. They said among themselves, what manner of speech is this? I mean, you read enough of that, you're like, did they get anything that happened in that two and a half to three years? I could see them standing around Jesus and him saying something and, you know, Nathaniel or, no, we'd say uh, uh, Peter and James are standing next to one another and Peter under his breath says, James, do you know what he's talking about? I don't have a clue, man. Just smile and kind of nod your head up and down. Okay, yeah, Jesus, leaven of the Pharisees. I get it, don't you? What's wrong with you? I understand what's going on. Leaven of the Pharisees, of course. The bread that we just had. Now we're in the boat. I mean, it, it takes a Jesus mind. So Jesus is saying, learn of me. So you're like, oh, I need to learn his love language. What is, what is the language that I speak to Jesus that's going to open up amazing flow in our lives that I, my, I and I have to, I don't want to say work for it, but I have to lean into it and say, I want to know how to know Jesus. I want to know the depths of Christ. I'm convinced in America that we were at the shallow end of the pool. And there's probably a lot of people in the deep end I don't know about, but I've been at the shallow end of the pool and the Lord's inviting me into a deeper place, but it's a little scary because you got to swim when you get into the deeper end of the pool. In fact, it's amazing. You know, in the scripture, it talks about the river that runs out of the garden of the Lord or out of the temple of the Lord. And uh, it gets deeper and deeper as it gets farther away. So you're going to find yourself going into the depths of Lord, so, of the Lord. It says this in 51. So he did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. He went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was subject to them. Everybody get that? And it says, but his mother kept all these things in her heart, as most moms do. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and found favor with God and man. So here's, here's my hypothesis. Jesus is the master builder. He comes as a carpenter. He was not born in Nazareth by accident. It was by design. So he ends up in a carpenter's home, an artisan's home, who would have dealt, at that time, would have dealt with stone and also with wood. But there was not a lot of wood right near Nazareth. They would have had travel outside of their little community of about three or 400 at that time, outside of that community, into the hills to pull trees down, drag them all the way back, fashion them, prepare them for building whatever they built. Here's the deal. They, they believe that they built, uh, let's see, I've got it written down here. Um, he would have built uh, plows, yokes. They believe dolls, like play dolls. Uh, they were found all around Nazareth from that century, wooden dolls, and potentially even, get this, shipbuilding, because they were between two seas, Sea of Galilee, the Med Sea. In fact, it's possible because we know that Jesus did make some treks over there by the Sea of Galilee. 
Think this through. This is, this is what I've been thinking about lately. The boat that Jesus fell asleep in, maybe he fell asleep in it because he built it. It's possible. There wouldn't be huge boats. There'd be fishing vessels. Is it the children that ran to Jesus and wanted to be around him all the time? Is it because of the dolls that he made? He was a bit famous around Nazareth. He was known as the carpenter's son and then later known as the carpenter or the tradesman or the artisan. I believe he was famous for his work. I I believe that. I believe that he built, how many of you think he would have built something of quality? The creator of the universe. A chair? I mean, I can picture people saying, if you bought something from Jesus, you know, the guy in Nazareth, there's something about his stuff. The quality of this stuff, you can't like destroy it. It's amazing. I feel like it's going to be here forever. He said, I sit down in there for dinner with my wife. I sit down. I feel the presence of Yahweh come on me just sitting in the chair. This is the stuff that Jesus builds because he makes all things beautiful in its time. And so you know that when Jesus made plows, they were, when he made plows, when he made yokes, you know, he probably had the best. They said, my cows have never been happier than they are now. His yoke, I mean, it's weird. His yoke is like easy and the, and the burden is light. And Jesus thought, that's good sermon material right there. I'm going to preach that Sunday. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come unto me, all you that are hungry. And labor and, and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I mean, this, this, do you understand? In fact, I've got this theory that all the parables are basically sermon illustrations out of Jesus' life. The sower and the seed, we know that is. But every aspect of it, whether it's a yoke or it's whether an owner of a vineyard leaving and the, and the, and the servants wanting to beat the, the son. And I mean, it, it's in Jesus' mind, everything was playing together. Everything was like a spiritual illustration. Why? Because he was about his father's business. Yeah, he was a carpenter. Yes, he was had a menial job of going out in the woods. Sometimes they would have had to travel to the next village, which they said is about a two-hour walk. So he and Joseph would get up early in the morning when he was a young boy. And eventually he became the, the they believe he became the owner of his own business. In fact, uh, oh, I forget the guy's name right now. Just uh, the guy who wrote the book, Anointed for Business, uh, uh, Ed Silvoso. Ed Silvoso has a theory, which he says he can kind of prove, is that, that Jesus uh, uh, developed a business that actually was meant to support him in his ministry for those three years. That a rabbi, typically rabbis emerged around age 30, and at age 30, one of the requirements for a rabbi is that they had to create their own business that would support them, their family, and their relatives while they were away doing their teaching. So that he had to have quite a bit of money to do that. And so Jesus took it on his heart, somehow knowing intuitively in his heart is his face is set resolutely toward Jerusalem. This is my job. This is my task. But I am about my father's business. Everything I'm doing right now is what I'm going to do in the future. Everything that I develop right now is going to be done with excellence because I am an excellent. I'll take everything. Whatever you give me, I'll, you give me a broken chair and I'll make it into something beautiful. Because I've read in Isaiah that I'll, he'll give you beauty for ashes and joy for mourning and a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. You give me whatever you have. You give to the master carpenter. He's going to take it. He's going to make something magnificent out of it. But he's called us to have the mind of Christ. He's called us saying, follow me, learn of me, come after me, know my things, take up my yoke, take up my cross. Why? Because he's calling us to do the same thing. 
Whatever job you're in, whatever situation you're in, how terrible the people are there. God has called you in that situation to straighten out some of those broken pieces, to bring things together. You may be the only hope for your company you're in right now. You may be at the very lowest part of that company. Think of Apostle Paul who guided a ship in a storm in the Mediterranean and he was the lowest person in the ship. He was in chains guarded by a Roman soldier. And everyone probably looked at him like, what what am I going to listen to you for? Before you know it, he's giving out orders all over the ship. You need to do this. Dump this overboard. If everyone stays on the boat, no one will die. And they're like, okay. I mean, what are they listening to a prisoner? How does he do that? Because he's about his father's business. It doesn't matter where he is. It doesn't matter how difficult his situation is. This is the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ says nothing will hold me back. Nothing will contain me in any way. You could put me into a prison, but I will emerge second command of all of Egypt. That's exciting to me. You know, I go to Home Depot this week. I'm in Florida on vacation, you know, and I go to Home Depot and I had to, I was installing a light on the, the place that we stay and I need a little insulation, you know, so I go in there and, you know, I like, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy that just likes the smell of Home Depot and Lowe's and I go in there just to walk the aisles and experience bliss, you know, like, oh, wow, how could I use that? I need to buy that. You know, it's just amazing. I think they have something in the air in there or something. But anyway, I go in there and of course I'm over getting some little electronic stuff, you know, to hook this thing up. And I hear the guy, a guy working there, a big guy, his name's Stan. Stan's a big guy, he's talking to a customer, he's cutting some stuff for him. I don't forget what it was. He goes, oh, my back's really bad. Back's bad. I got like uh, uh, some kind of nerve problem or something. I get shooting pains all up and down my back and my sides. I can't lift anything. I like nothing more than a, like a jug of milk. I mean, it's just, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible pain. I mean, of course the guy really cares less. Uh, the, the customer's like, you know, just cut this thing. I need to go home. So he gets it done. He leaves and I walk over there, you know, and the Holy, in fact, the Holy Spirit starts speaking to me about Stan. I'm, you know, I, I'm like anyone else. I'm like, Oh Lord, you know, not, not now. I'll never get out of here. You know, I mean, this is what I'm a pastor. I love people. And that's what I think about, you know, so I, I looked over and said, hey, Stan. He goes, yeah? I said, I heard you say that you hurt your back or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he tells me the whole story he just told this guy. And I said, uh, well, hey, um, I pray for people in the name of Jesus. I always use Jesus up front. I want to make sure they get <laughs> they know what they're getting. Uh, I, I pray for people in the name of Jesus. Would you mind if I prayed for you for 30 seconds? And I say that because it disarms people. They don't want you. They think prayer. They think they need to bow down that they're going to be touched. They, it's weird. It's awkward. Please don't do that. So I, I'm, I lay out the rules right out front really clear. I'll just pray with you. You don't have to close your eyes or anything just for 30 seconds. So, oh, okay. And so I spoke to the Lord and to Stan at the same time. So I said, I looked, you know, I looked him in the eyes, looking at where his pain was. And I just, I didn't touch him. I just held my hand out. And I just said, in the name of Jesus, I speak to this pain. I speak to that nerve. Now he's probably never been prayed about like that in his life. So I'm directing his physical body because it's what Jesus would do. You know, Jesus seldom prayed for people. He spoke to them. He touched them. He spit and put it in their ear. You know, I'm not there yet, so I'm still praying a little bit. (laughs) And I declare and I decree over them. And I, I hold to my time. I do it quick. Sometimes I weave the whole gospel message in that 30 seconds. Thank you, Lord, that you love Stan. You know, you're here for him. 
You didn't bring this pain on him. I, I try to correct theology everywhere I can. And I, I speak to it. And I got done. He said, well, thank you. Thank you very much. He didn't tell me he felt better or anything. And I didn't feel that I need to prolong that. And I said, well, where's that insulation that I was looking for? He says, well, you got to go over there on the other side. It's in the middle area and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that was like, blah, blah, blah. I didn't hear any of it, you know. And so I go up front and there's this African-American uh, cashier there, a little vibrant woman, you know. But in fact, I got a theory now that 80% of African-Americans are Christians. Maybe 90. I don't know. But your odds are if you're anywhere and you need someone to be a prayer partner with you, select an African-American. Somehow they know how to pray. So... This African-American lady, I'm there. She goes, oh, yeah, you know, you got to go in the back there. You know what? Let me just show you. So we're walking. Leisha. Leisha's her name. We're walking along, you know. And we're running this guy. She knows is a, a customer there. And she goes, hey, Bob, how you doing? He goes, well, not very good. She says, why not? He said, well, I was coming into Home Depot. He's a regular, you know. I was coming into Home Depot. Somebody bought a bunch of copper pipes, and the wind caught it, and those pipes hit me in the side of the head. She said, really? Did you go up to the front desk and tell them? I mean, they might want to do something about that. He goes, no, 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 I'm going to do anything about it. He said, well, you should. You should go up there, you know. And she goes, I can go up and tell them right now if you want. He goes, oh, whatever. I don't really care. You know, I just want to get on with my day. And so he, this is a big, tough guy, you know. And he's a builder of some sort. And he turns around to his stuff and said, <clears throat> hey, Bob. Bob, is your head hurting right now? Yeah, it's hurting. Uh, no, he used other language. I really can't use that. But it was hurting. I could tell by what he said. I said, hey, Bob, would you mind if I just prayed for you? I said, 30-second prayer. I've seen a lot of people healed from this kind of stuff and just kind of get the trauma off of you. Oh, okay. So I start praying, and then I hear, in the name of Jesus, and I look, and Leisha, Leisha has partnered with me. In the name of Jesus, we, we speak to that. We rebuke that pain in the name of Jesus. I'm like... Much better than mine. Amazing. So we get done. I go, Alicia, you're a believer. She goes, oh, yeah. I thought, wow. So we're walking back. And she's giving me testimony about uh, breast cancer that she had identified. I forget what stage it was. Breast cancer. And she got prayer. They went back. They checked again. Totally healed. No evidence of any breast cancer. She told me three amazing cancer deliveries in the time from the, the back of the wood department all the way up to the cashier. I get up there and I'm like, this is amazing. I mean, I thought, I, now, I've been to Home Depot over an hour by this point, you know, and I, I get up front and I, uh, I said, well, Alicia, I pay for my stuff here. She goes, oh, yes. She goes, that's why I signed up. That's why I work at Home Depot. Now, I've heard people say they don't like Home Depot, they don't like Lowe's, they don't like Job, whatever. She goes, I love it here. She goes, this is just an amazing place to meet amazing. It's a believer, a believer's view. She's got Jesus on her, this woman. And she said, would you, so we've, you know, I put my credit card in, pay for my stuff, put it in the bank. She goes, would you pray for me? I said, sure. I prophesied over her. I prayed over her. She's there. I mean, she, there's people waiting in line. I know she's there. I'm like, in Jesus' name, we just speak, Lord. <laughs> I got done. She came around. She hugged me. And she said, I love it. You need to come here more often. I thought, well, I'm just going to have to make my major job to Home Depot and Lowe's or something like it. But I, I realized there's a, this is what the Lord's been speaking to me over the past year, that I've been on outreaches. I know how to do treasure hunting. I know how to do all that stuff. And, it, and it, it's great because it, it does teach you so many things. I encourage you to be a part of that. If you do that out of here, do that. It's, it's awesome. It's great practice. You learn a lot. You learn, I mean, it's just so much. But the Holy Spirit is wanting to give you the mind of Christ. Now we have it positionally, 
But practically, are we walking it out where I feel what God is feeling and I move with what he is saying? And you, it doesn't matter what job you are, where you are, where you're placed. You can take the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in that spot. Just give me two more minutes. I know my time's out. Just give me two more minutes here real quick. Let me tell you a little bit about Jesus and how he was raised because I, I think it's, it's meaningful. Psalm 147.2 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And so Jesus has a heart to build. I've got eight love languages so far uh, for God. And I, I wish I had more time to go into them. But let me just put it this way. You can learn how to please God. Now, God loves you. God loves you because his shed blood's on you. He, he, he loved the world even before they ever repented. He loves people. He does, all people. But there's also a way to bring, to, to, to cause pleasure to God and to please God. And so we learned about him. What did he do? Here's some stuff uh, that you may or may not have known. So he was, he built plows, yokes, dolls, so forth. Carpenters were also stonemasons. Uh, they believe that he would have worn a wood chip over his left ear. And uh, it was common in those times. In fact, if you were a, uh, uh, a seamstress of some sort, made garments, you would have a needle stuck in your shirt. So it's like a business card. Everyone knew that guy can fix my clothing. But Jesus, he had a wood chip over his ear and they would know he was a carpenter. In fact, in Nazareth, uh, Nazareth was known as a town of builders, actually. He, he was raised in a uh, town of builders. He followed all the laws and customs. We have no record of him ever going to jail or being arrested. He's between two seas. He uh, followed the customs. He remained in his mother's care until age five. And the rabbi taught him, the rabbis taught at the time, just as it is necessary to feed one's son, so it is necessary to teach him a manual trade. So Jesus was doing the manly thing at the time. He was learning a trade and he was probably excellent at it. Just listen to this real quick. Uh, he took on his father's business, ultimately. Uh, Copperers were also stonemasons. Uh, but this is cool. Look at this. When mentored by Joseph, it was a close-knit relationship. Fathers and sons were very close in uh, Judea at the time because they were, they were learning a trade from their father. They were respectful. They were actually going to, they'd already been to, to uh, eight, seven or eight years of, of Jewish school. So they understood the Proverbs and the Psalms. They respect toward their parents and how honorable it is to work and enjoy your work and to do good things and have good quality. He was learning about customer service and all those kinds of things. But this unique relationship between his father and son, which Joseph later disappeared, we don't know why, uh, it, it inspires verses like uh, only do what I see the father doing. So in Jesus' life, as stuff's being spoken and quoted from him, it's out of his upbringing of being a follower of his father that he understood the broader understanding of, so you at work and you're following a, a mentor or a, an owner of a job, regardless of how they're treating you, there's a sense of understanding that I am learning. God is using this. He's taking me and I'm going to be about the father's business as I learn this earthly temporal realm of study. They would go in the forest to fetch wood. Uh, some of this I already said. Each day they left the house, they would touch the mezuzah. Is that right? The little box on the door at the front, which had a scripture in it. He and his father would go buy it. As good Jews in the day, they would touch the box with their fingers and then to their lips. And inside that box was a little verse. It was basically a creed. And it said, oh, hear, O Israel, 
The Lord your God is one. Jesus would go to work. They believe he spoke four languages. He studied at Bible school to age 12, the Bet uh, Hakanesant. Uh, he studied at Bible school. To, he was 12. His family likely talked hours about God. In small Jewish communities, they were consumed with Jehovah. And they would talk about God all the time and review the scriptures and review what they heard at the synagogue. Um, in fact, Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, as, as I think I've told you here before, when she did her Magnificat, where she confessed thanksgiving to God, she quoted up to 17 discernible verses in that praise to God. So Mary just didn't win some kind of a uh, maternal lottery of some sort. She was favored by God because she was a woman of the word. Uh, they were deeply devout and they took pilgrimages. Uh, they were part of the devout Jews of the time. Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish world. Parents went to Passover every year. Passover was seven days long. Jesus ate healthy. His breakfast every day, likely because of the, the uh, uh, digging that they've done around Nazareth from that time. He ate flatbread, olives, and cheese for breakfast. So that was his diet. He likely played with spinning toys and wheels. They found them from the first century. The little kids made uh, uh, toys out of it. And his parents probably played board games. There were several board games that were popular, small Jewish towns at the time. So they didn't have Netflix or anything like that, Hulu. They would just stay up late at night, play games. The kids would play and they'd all go to bed, you know, because when the sun went down, they would go to lighted lamps and so forth. And uh, locusts were a delicacy reportedly tasting somewhat like shrimp. I'm not going to try that, but it's, uh, it's interesting. And uh, it goes on and on. I mean, it's amazing, really, what happened. But Jesus grew up in a place where garden, building, kingdom was highly important to him. He was led his whole life by that. The Jews, fortunately, had the, the uh, privilege of not being bound by time. You know, in ancient times, there's no clock. So, you know, hey, I told you we'd be here at Starbucks at 10 o'clock. It's 10.05. What happened? In Jesus' time, that just wasn't a part of their culture. You know, when the sun reaches a certain point, I'll meet you over there by the, uh, by the Starbucks. And that could be an hour either way. You know, so they were just, they were people that were moving and flowing. It was part of their whole culture. I'm telling you, it's the same culture. I'm not saying that you come late to church, but it's the same culture that God is placing upon his people that we think like Jesus, I'll stand together if we could. <clears throat> so we're about our Father's business. If we get our worship band up here, and if some of our ministry people, I don't know what you call them here, but if they could come up to the front of any of our ministry team, we're going to invite some people up for ministry here in a few minutes. We're going to be totally done within three, so you know <clears throat> that we are going to end this thing. We're so glad you came out today. And I hope this ministers to you. But I want to speak just for a moment. Anyone here that does not know Jesus Christ. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. So I just want to speak over this crowd. If you've never known Jesus, the Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you'd be saved. That's a a term used in scripture, euphemistically, of becoming a child of God. It says in John, you're born again. Whatever terminology you want to use. It's based, I love it. I love the thief on the cross because the thief on the cross had no religion at all. He's a thief. And he turns to Jesus having an epiphany, thinking, you know what? This guy is more than what, he's a bigger deal than what people think. 
So he turns to Jesus and he said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, would you remember me? You know, he didn't, he didn't tithe. He wasn't water baptized. Didn't go through any kind of training. Probably never even heard the Torah much, you know. Maybe he had it growing up, but veered off somewhere. But he knows something is going on with this man being crucified next to him. So much so that he rises to the point of saying, will you remember me? When you come into your kingdom, Jesus could have easily turned and said, you've got to be kidding me. You're a thief. You're not a good Jew. Have you ever even gone to the temple? Have you ever even been down to Jerusalem? Have you ever, I mean, have you done the stuff that you're supposed to do? Do you, do you know the 613 laws of the Torah? You know that? Have you obeyed them? I love what Jesus does. All Jesus does is lean over and go, today, you'll be with me in paradise. It's the seed of hunger. Little seed of hunger saying, Lord, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to do. All I know is where, you want, where you're going, I want to go. I want to be there. Because I've sensed something from you that I've never sensed from anyone else in my whole life. And Jesus responds in such affirmation. I mean, if we understood the the total love and affirmation of God, it would blow our minds. It would blow our minds. So if you're here today and you've never done that, you say, I want to explore this. I want to know the things of Christ. I want to know him. I want to follow him. We're going to pray a prayer all together here in just a minute. If you've never prayed this prayer, pray it in faith. That means you're believing what you're saying. Just pray it together. And we'll ask for everyone in this room. It's always good. I know we're not repenting over and over again. I get that. But there's something good about speaking and renewing our commitment to Christ periodically. So we do it every week back home. So let's just pray this together. Lord Jesus, I come before you. I release all my sins to you, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. Some of it I didn't even know I was doing. I believe that you died for me. And today I receive that. Come and live inside of me. And I will learn of you. In Jesus' name.